Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. And today we'll be talking about Mexican singer Chavelo Vargas. Before we start, I have a few content warnings. This episode contains mention of alcohol abuse and alcoholism, firearms, brief mentions of domestic violence, and one use of the word bitch in a quote. If any of that's something you don't want to hear, feel free to skip this episode and check out some of our others. They have different content warnings. This is the second time we've recorded this episode. We did record it around this time last year and... Some things went horribly wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Some things, mainly. No further details there. No further details. It's it's classified. That classified information. Yep. So we decided to hold off on that episode until this year because two days after you hear this, assuming you listen to this the second it comes out because you're a very keen fan, two days after you hear this is actually Chavela Vargas's 100th birthday. Or would be. Or would be. She is dead. So we're talking about, as I said, Chavela Vargas, or very occasionally Chavela Vargas with a B. I mentioned this, I only ever saw that spelling in one academic paper, but in that paper she was determined that this was an alternative spelling. The author of that paper, Yvonne Yabro Bejarano, was pretty unashamed in her lesbian thirst for Chevelle. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> like, the paper was, was very enjoyable. I recommend it. It's very readable. To quote her, Vargas's first name is spelled at times with a V and at times with a B. I prefer the B for butch. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that was that. Yeah, I but- assume that's just alternative writings of how that letter is pronounced in Spanish, not really being the equivalent of an English B. Yeah, I'd say so. I don't know a lot about Spanish. I know even less about Spanish in Mexico. Okay. But I'd say so. I'm just going to declare that's the case then. That's definitely (laughs) the person in this room who knows the most about Spanish. You are certainly the most Spanish person in this room. Yes. (laughs) Chavela was well known first in Mexico and then later on around the world for her deeply emotional renditions of rancheros and boleros, which are a kind of Mexican folk music. Her, particularly her style involved like letting emotion affect her voice. So when you listen to her sing, you hear a lot of like sort of breathy pauses or like her voice cracks at emotional moments and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's very kind of raw and direct. So I asked this last time we did this a year ago and you said no, and I'm going to ask it again. Do you have any recordings of her singing prepared for us to listen to? I did this again and I did not prepare. As you see, I have no... Are you going to just perform? I am not going to perform in the style of Chavala. I I would love it if you were just like, yes, and brought a guitar out of my (laughs) life. Yes, without my poncho. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to do that. Um, There are a lot of recordings of her available. I think she released 80 albums or something. What? Are there that many songs? That's a lot of songs. Yes. That is a lot of songs. And she was performing, like, right up until she died, basically. So there's a lot of recordings of her available if you want to go on YouTube and listen, basically. Okay, that's what I'll do after the episode. Um, But as you see, my paper cannot play songs. Okay. What's interesting to us, though, is her place as a famous Spanish-speaking Mexican lesbian, basically. In an interview in the 1990s, Chavela said, the first woman in Mexico who dared to sing to a woman was me. I'm assuming that this isn't strictly true. Probably others didn't record 80 albums about it. She was definitely one of the first openly queer Mexican celebrities. Both women and men? Yeah, I'd say so. Mm. To give you an idea, I guess, of her importance, I'm going to go back to Yvonne Yabro Bejarano, who I talked about before, (laughs) who, in the introduction of her article that I read, she discussed the importance of having that lesbian perspective on traditional Mexican music available to her as a Hispanic person. She said she makes a cherished repertory of Mexican and Latin American music uniquely mine. Mm -hmm. And she sort of talked about how this was a traditionally very heterosexual kind of space Mm -hmm. and Chavela's interpretation of it allowed her to access it in a way that she wouldn't have been able to without it, essentially. I guess that's the, like, academic description of lesbian thirst. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
There was a part in her paper, and I don't think I quoted it here, just to give you an idea about her paper, where she spent a little while talking about how it's maybe not strictly accurate to apply a sort of butch femme dichotomy to Mexican lesbianism in 1950. She was like, I don't think this directly applies. And then she was like, but as a Hispanic American, I interpret her as a butch woman. And anyway, this is my fantasy. <laughs> this is your academic paper, you <laughs> Yeah, it really, it was quite, it's quite an interesting paper just in terms of the tone. Mm. So a lot of the information I've used here, both biographical and the actual words of Chavela herself, come from the documentary Chavela, which Eli kindly and legally sourced for me. I did do this, yes. A <laughs> <laughs> um, good research assistant. Yeah. I have no idea, actually. Like, I very much have plausible deniability in that I definitely got it for Irene, but I don't remember how, and it was a year ago, so I had to search my own hard drive for it and get it again. Maybe you went to a library and got a DVD and then, oh wait, that's still That's still illegal. (laughs) I mean, it was called something like, like, Chabella tilde 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 random symbols. I believe it was DVD rip 49 or something. Chabella tilde 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 random symbols 18 plus uncensored. (laughs) Which is bizarre because it's a documentary. Was it very risque? Not really. You know, it occasionally mentioned sex with women. Or two eighteen plus. Yeah, I guess so. So that documentary was directed by Catherine Gund and Doresha Key. So Catherine interviewed Chavela extensively in 1991, and then as far as I can tell, kind of forgot about her documentary project for a good two decades. Oh, <laughs> two decades. <laughs> and then came back to it, and the documentary was released in 2017. I mean, maybe she was trying to source funding or something like that. Yeah, I'm not really sure, but it is, I guess, fortunate that she did this because we have a lot of interview footage of Chavella. Chavella did also write an autobiography in 2002. No English translation has ever been published, and as discussed, I don't speak Spanish. I have seen, like, bits of it when people used it in their other papers and they translated sort of small sections just Mm -hmm. to reference them but I've never seen the whole text obviously which is sad because she said a lot of interesting things about queerness in it which Hmm. I could not really access or I could kind of puzzle through with Google Translate but didn't really feel comfortable using as a source. (laughs) That's reasonable, please don't. (laughs) I don't think you can offer insights on history by Google Translate. Yeah, no. So the only times I really reference that is when somebody else has quoted her in a paper and done the translation and analysis part for me. On that note, every time I quote Chavela, it's in translation. All the interviews were in Spanish Hmm. with subtitles. I don't think she spoke English, as far as I know. So just bear that in mind when I use her words. They're not her words. Okay, so with that aside, which was the relatively short talk about our source of direction. <laughs> I feel like you're attacking us. <laughs> How dare you? I would not. I would never. Are you attacking us, though? Or are you attacking Neil McKenna? <laughs> <laughs> are we not always attacking Neil McKenna in our hearts? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Anyway, to Javella. She was born in Costa Rica on April the 17th, which is the day after tomorrow, except in 1919, which is not the day after tomorrow, as Isabel Vargas Lizano. She was baptised on July 19th. Additional names. So her full name as she was baptised was Maria Isabel Anita Carmen de Jesus Vargas Lizano. She describes her childhood as a lonely and difficult one. She was very isolated. She recalls sneaking out of bed in the middle of the night to stare at the moon and wonder where life would take her, which is frankly too existential for a child. At, like, what age am I picturing this? Like, five? Um, like a teen? We're still talking, like, childhood, like, prepubescent. She didn't generally enjoy the activities that were expected of a girl in this era or the company of the children around her. She makes a couple of references in her biography to maybe domestic violence, maybe abuse. She says, I'm talking about abandonment and scorn. I'm talking about blows and humiliation. But it wasn't clear to me whether she was talking about other children or her family. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure. All of this so far has been a very typical queer childhood experience, I feel. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I feel like we could just, like, 
auto-generate one of these episodes at this point, and that would be the job <laughs> we would pick. She was uncomfortable dressing in girls' clothing. Her appearance and her mannerisms were generally seen as unacceptably boyish. Her family was very religious and quite conservative and worried about fitting in, and they found it very difficult to accept Isabel as she was or to sort of allow the neighbours to see her. They would frequently hide her when visitors came over. That's some, like, Harry Potter garbage. I don't know if they had stairs, but yeah. Did she have any siblings? Not that I saw mentioned. While she was still a child, her parents separated and she was sent to live with an aunt and uncle. This did nothing to help her feelings of rejection by her community and isolation. She had this sort of childish idea then that her parents had rejected her as well. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems like they kind of have. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she could have gone with either parent and said she ended up with an aunt. Like, I don't know what the story was there, but you can see exactly why she thought that. Yeah. She remembers in her autobiography, she remembers being aware of her sexuality at this age. What age are we talking here? Um, I think her parents separated when she was about eight. Okay, so she's pretty young. Yeah. She sees it as something that contributed to the negative experience of her childhood and the way she was treated at home. What hurts, she said, about her childhood isn't being homosexual. It's that people throw it in your face as if it's the plague. To some extent, I feel like at this age, she's conceived her gender expression as part of the lesbian experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I can't sort of say a lot more about that because, as I said, I didn't see her words exactly on that topic. Understandably, she became obsessed with leaving Costa Rica and finding somewhere else. She says in interviews that she started singing aged eight and it became her entertainment in her isolation. She sang in church, she sang at school, she sang at home, and she became gradually aware that she could maybe make a career out of this and it might be her ticket out of a home that didn't love her. So before I go any further, I'm going to show my ignorance and ask, where is Costa Rica? (laughs) (laughs) It's like south of Mexico in the skinny part. Okay. It's in Central America. Yeah. Okay. Age 17, she sold some chickens to pay for her bus fare. And <laughs> what chickens? Whose chickens? Presumably her family's chickens. Did she steal them? It's not really clear. All she said was she sold some chickens to pay the bus fare and began a bus journey to Mexico. That's very Jack and the Beanstalk-esque. <laughs> yeah. I, I just like to picture her, like, sneaking out in the middle of the night and having to steal three chickens on the way and having to kind of <laughs> stuff them into a rucksack and keep them quiet. But isn't it with chickens that if you put something over their head, they just think it's nighttime? Now, I've tried this and it doesn't work. <laughs> I think Australian I once... chickens are probably fightier than other chickens. <laughs> Maybe. I once took some chickens on an hour-long car ride. Yeah. For what purpose? We were going away somewhere and I took them, we took them to my grandparents' house to mind. Or my uncle's house or something. Anyway. And you put a blanket over them and then we they just We tried putting yelled. them in a dark box and they were not satisfied. <laughs> Did they get loose and run about the car? After a while, we like opened half of it so they could poke their heads out and look around and they were happy after that. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, my chickens, it didn't work. Okay. Dorella's chickens, we'll never know. We'll never know. I always imagined her just like carrying one under each arm. But anyway, so she took the bus to Mexico where she supported herself by busking until she managed to start landing shows in like clubs and that kind of place. I'm sorry to go back to the chickens, but I forgot that the premise of this was that she sold the chickens for the bus fare. And I just pictured her on the bus with like a horde of chickens. all the way to Mexico. It was good. No, she did not take the chickens. <laughs> at this time, so we're looking at probably like 1937, 1936, around then. Okay, so she's in like her late teens, early 20s. Yeah, so she's 17 when she sells the chickens. <laughs> at this time, there were women performing in public and Mexican popular music. Mm-hmm. It was generally performed that they dressed in a style which looks very hyper feminine to us now it's very kind of like hoop skirts and ruffles and ribbons in the hair and that kind of thing oh yeah the kind of persona of a female performer was generally very like coquettish and flirtatious were they generally just singing or like did women also perform with instruments was there any kind of norm there or i'm 
not really sure. It's discussed seeing Chevella with the guitar. The guitar is seen as a very masculine symbol. Okay. But I don't know whether women performed with other instruments regularly. Anyway, so Isabel, when she was starting out in her performance career, to some extent she seems to have seen Chevella as a kind of separate persona that she adopted. So like a stage persona? Not or... really. More an adult persona. Like, she definitely went as Chavella throughout her adult life, but there's this interview she gives with Catherine, who directed the documentary, yeah, where she's talking about her name, and she says, Isabel, the name my mother gave me. That's the person I love. Chavella's a real bitch. (laughs) (laughs) For some context, you just feel like you need to hear this part. This interview she gives in a boat. The two of them are sitting in a boat. I don't really know why. And at the uh, end of the interview, she says, I feel like getting in the water, don't you? And she just climbs over the side of the boat. (laughs) That's the best way to exit an interview. (laughs) That's fantastic. So like a rowboat? Yeah. Okay, that's exactly what I pictured. Are like sitting in a little boat together and she's talking about her name and her identity. And then she's like, I feel like getting in the water. And she climbs over the side. Anyway. So she's just started singing in clubs. She has. And she sort of tries this aesthetic at first because it's like the typical thing to do and she's trying to get work. Mm -hmm. And so she tries on this kind of very feminine persona and she says many years later, it didn't work. I look like a transvestite. This is really reminding me of Stormy. Yeah, yeah. Because Stormy who also dressed originally presenting feminine and later masculine when she was performing, specifically said one of the reasons I started presenting masculine was because I was accused of being a drag queen. Yeah. Like, on the street. Yeah, that's interesting. So, yeah, she says she always felt uncomfortable in dresses and she describes feeling nervous every time she had to be seen in public wearing heels and rehearsing walking downstairs because she was afraid she would trip. Which is, like, understandable, frankly. Mm, Whoever invented mm. heels. King Louis, the somebody. Yeah, King Louis, the one through 745th. Yeah. Yeah. So finally, after a couple of years of sort of trying to perform in that persona and feeling uncomfortable and feeling like it wasn't really working, she adopted a different persona. She replaced the dresses and the coquettish manner with pants and ponchos and, like, severely pulled back hair and a ponytail. Mm Mm-hmm. The word people generally use to describe it is macho, which is like, think of it as like the feminine word or version of macho. Okay, it's interesting that they still use a feminine version of the adjective that means, I assume it means like masculine and manly yeah. or that kind of, I don't know exactly what the translation might be. I mean, I guess it is kind of like we have the word butch. That's true, and butch is a word for women who present masculine yeah yeah like we don't use that word about men yeah we do no we do yeah it's definitely a word that like gay men use like it's not a okay whole, like, okay it's like it's not an identity but yeah and and maybe i it's not a thing as much now i guess i'm associating it more with like kind of like 70s like beefcake novels oh yeah, yeah. but people do kind of like refer to like we're like butch men yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I guess not. So. Not as an identity, just as a like, you know, an adjective to describe the buff, very masculine, like hyper masculine, yeah, persona that went on in gay male spaces and still does, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I'm not allowed in there, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> so talk to us about matcha. Yeah, I don't. Again, I don't know enough Spanish to go as in depth into this as I would mm. like to. But yeah, it's essentially, it regularly gets translated as butch. It's essentially, it seems to describe like a woman presenting in a masculine way. Mm -hmm. So like butch lesbians, for example, like self-identify as butch lesbians and have like a butch femme community in which there's a space where butch lesbians have a community. Is there a similar thing for matra? Are there people who like see their identity as matcha and gather in groups who identify in that way? Or is it just a adjective to describe a woman who's wearing pants? Um, again, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. It didn't, like, I didn't see it get used in that way, in a kind of identity way. I don't know how people would use it, like, now. Okay. Whether there's a community that uses that word. 
but that's definitely it's the word that people use to describe Chavela at that time. Mm. Um, Is it pejorative or neutral? Seemed fairly neutral. Okay. Anyway, this is about the time when she adopts the name Chavela. So I obviously Chavela is based on the name Isabella. Like yeah. there's obviously a connection there. Yeah. Do you know if it's just like a common nickname for Isabella? Like does it have Yeah, I think it's it's an established nickname for Isabella. Okay. I was just thinking because like, you know, in English some feminine names have more masculine nicknames that people like, might use. Like, if you're called Alexandra, you can be called Alex, and that's more gender neutral. Yeah. Chavala sounds like a feminine name to me just because it ends in an A. So I was just wondering if it had any more gender neutral connotations than Isabella might. I don't think so. I think she more just kind of wanted to separate herself from her childhood. Okay. In some way. Which is not to say, like... To go back a little bit, when I said before, and Chavella was talking about her name, where she said, Isabel, that's the person I love. Chavella's a real bitch. I... And then she jumped out of the boat. Yeah, and then she <laughs> dove into the sea and walked away. Yeah, anyway, I don't, like, I don't want you to think that what she meant by this was that that more masculine gender presentation went against what she wanted. Mm-hmm. But I do think that she had to kind of exaggerate it in order to be accepted in that environment like if she wasn't going to be that sort of typical feminine performer she had to kind of go for this like hard drinking gun toting cigar smoking she had to really commit to the butch image or people would just be like you're a woman who's not achieving femininity yeah rather than you're a woman who's rejected femininity yeah it was something that i noticed when i read all of her obituaries the first thing they would mention they would be like this hard drinking gun toting lesbian would be like in the first sentence before her music yeah so like i said she starts smoking cigars she carries a gun it's up in the air a lot of the time whether it's loaded or not she does know how to use it. I it, thought you were going to say the gun was up in the air a lot no. of the time, and I'm like, okay, that doesn't seem safe, but carry on. <laughs> there's a lot of discussion where she's, like, on stage performing, and there's a lot of discussion about whether the gun is loaded during the performance, and I'm like, I hope not, guys. Why would you load the gun during the performance? Why would you load a gun? <laughs> That's a fair question. Fair point. She starts riding a motorbike. Good. She's really committed to the yeah, image. Yeah. She also develops at this time a kind of reputation as a womanizer. There are sort of there are stories going around of her like kidnapping young peasant girls and ravishing them. It's very like I don't know how to say, it's very kind of Fabio-esque. Yeah, yeah. It's like way beyond anything. Yeah. Reasonable. Um, which she sort of vehemently denies, obviously, but I think Because she, it's not true. Because <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> but I think she does kind of enjoy that this is the kind of rumour that goes around about her. Mm-hmm. That she's achieved this reputation where she can be seen as someone who can womanize. Like being a woman who can womanize. Yeah, women aren't even like women who are attracted to women aren't often accused of being womanizers. Yeah. It's a very masculine coded word. Yeah. This seems generally to have a positive effect on her career. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, which is quite interesting. I think she's quite polarizing, like, but she's also got this very sort of pared back emotive way of performing songs that are not traditionally performed quite like that. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that appeals. She's never mainstream. She's always performing in sort of alternative venues. In the early 1940s, as she's like making a name for herself as a performer and an artist, she gets invited to a party by a friend where a whole lot of other Mexican artists and intellectuals are going to be dancing and getting drunk. Who will eat out the past? I wonder. Who are some other Mexican artists you have heard of? Who is one other Mexican artist that anyone has heard of? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, basically. Basically. So this is where she meets Frida Kahlo. The next thing I have in my notes is this note where I go, I want to be clear here. This is not the Josephine Baker situation. They had a relationship. Okay, let's explain the Josephine Baker situation. <laughs> sorry. Because this is still around. This is in my notes from last year, so <laughs> yes. We haven't dispelled the myth yet. <laughs> We're trying our hardest. So it's a very common 
rumor, if you look up Josephine Baker, who was a bisexual woman, that she and Frida Kahlo had a relationship. And as far as I have been able to find, there is no evidence that that relationship ever happened. And every citation claiming there's evidence leads you back to books that just never mention that relationship. So that's disappointing. It is is disappointing. But also, like, you don't get to say stuff about history because you wish it was true. I would say so many things about history. (laughs) What a different podcast it would be. Josephine definitely was bisexual, though, and you can find out more in our episode on her. And so is Frida, which we're about to hear more about in an actual real relationship she had with an actual real woman. That made it sound like Josephine Baker wasn't a real woman. Josephine Baker is real. Josephine Baker exists. (laughs) Historical facts. Yes. We give you the dirt here on Gross Facts, can confirm. Um, Anyway, I'm trying to segue neatly into the next... Just tell us about how Chevelle and Frida got together. I don't actually know exactly how they got together, but I do know that Chevelle devoted a whole chapter of her autobiography to her interaction with Frida Kahlo, even though she asks within that chapter, to what extent can a book describe the love between Frida and I? What? Javela says about them is we were muy mujeres like we Mexicans say and we loved each other because we were women. I spent a little bit of time looking into that phrase muy mujeres which seems to translate literally as very women. I was gonna say they yeah. were very women. What the- <laughs> it's a weird <laughs> phrase. Um, what it seems to describe is a very kind of strong-willed and passionate woman. Okay. Like a woman who is not afraid to go after what she wants. Like a big personality, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That seems to describe both of these people. Yes. I wonder if you can refer to a very man. I don't know. I'll have to ask a Mexican. Of the first time she met Frida, Chavela says, She was like a vision. I thought she was from another world. Her eyebrows together were a swallow in mid-flight. Which I just thought was super lovely, honestly. Mm. Mm. I like the fact that she sort of picked out the eyebrows from the start because it's this feature that now we consider either unattractive or we like reluctantly accept as unconventional beauty only in the case of Frida Kahlo. Yeah. Yeah. And I like the fact that she apparently just saw that and was like, yeah, yeah, I dig that. Mm. Hmm. And she says she thinks she could offer Frida the most devoted love in the world, the most ardent love in the world. Probably do better than Diego did. There's a moment where she describes Diego as an amphibious man. Why? We probably mentioned that Diego is Frida's husband, just if any other listeners are like, we've asked Diego how to Also, he sucks. Yeah. 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 Non controversial takes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Why is he amphibious? I think he was just like. Did that mean like slimy or does that mean cold, froggy? (laughs) Alright, sure. Yeah. So, yeah, there were. 15 years between Chavela and Frida. Frida was 15 years older. In spite of the age difference, Chavela sees them as having a great deal in common in terms of like a shared worldview. Also in terms of their interactions with gender. What united me with Frida, Chavela says, was her way of thinking and her way of being in the world. We thought the same way at the same time. We thought of the same things and wanted the world to be as we dreamed of. She sees Frida as a kind of mentor she says she taught me how to live my life and not be afraid of anything she taught me how to have my personality and not be afraid to break norms and she credits Frida with kind of teaching her that it's possible as a woman to embrace a kind of masculine beauty it's interesting that she credits Frida with these things even though she's already started um presenting in this kind of masculine bad boy image before meeting Frida? Yeah, yeah. And I think to some extent what she's kind of crediting Frida with is making her feel comfortable with going against convention. Mm -hmm. So I guess she was doing it already, but Frida helped her to feel better about it. Yeah, Frida helped her to feel less kind of anxious about it. She talks about this particular photo of Frida in a man's suit and she says Frida's masculine and elegant pose made a strong impression on her. But yeah, I think to some extent Frida just made her feel sort of comfortable like playing with gender norms and sort of seeing, I guess, seeing beauty in them. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting. Chavela's relationship with Frida was 
intense but relatively short term. Chavela spent some time living with Frida outside of Mexico City. Mm-hmm. And she knew that she eventually wanted to go back to the city and continue pursuing her music career. And Frida was very understanding of this. And so they parted amiably, basically. Okay. From here, Javela went back to the city and her performing career really took off. She was spotted performing by Alicia Juarez, who was the partner of Jose Alfredo Ramirez. Jose Alfredo performed traditional Mexican music, so similar kinds of music to Chavela, as well as being a songwriter. And one of the notable things that Chavela found about his lyrics, which she talked about later in life, was that he never condemned the women in his like tragic love songs for their actions. Like when he sang about a woman leaving him, his songs would kind of go along the lines of, I hope you forget about me and have a great life. I'm getting drunk now. Oh. <laughs> Rather than like, I hate you. <laughs> That's nice. That's good. That's good. So, yeah, his partner, Alicia, heard Chavela performing and thought that her voice would really suit Jose. So she introduced the two of them and they started a long professional collaboration. From this point, they also clicked personally and became very close friends. I found several references to apparently local bartenders were afraid when they came round because (laughs) they would stay until there was no drink left. Oh, no. I mean, surely that's a good thing. That's like, that's my whole, like, night's money from these two people. I guess that's true. You know when you're... Did they pay? (laughs) They would come in on a Friday night, drink the place dry over the course of the weekend, and not leave until Monday. Oh my god. Oh, so it's the bartender being like, I see that my shift is now 50 hours long. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. They used to drink together, they advised each other and provided wingmanship when they seduced (laughs) women. It was all, it seems like a nice friendship other than the alcohol issues. Chavela tended to sing rancheras in a different style than they had been performed previously. So someone quoted in the documentary Chavela, who heard Chavela perform live, says Chavela added a radical solitude to the ranchero repertoire, where the music and lyrics reached the level of early morning confession. It's intense. So it's very, I have like, I've watched videos of her perform and it's a very kind of intimate performance, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like, it's very, it's just her on the stage with the guitar, with this anguished face. Um, um, Does she have happy songs? She does have happy songs as well, but a lot of, I think, what she's remembered for is this kind of honest, raw emotion. Yeah, a lot of these songs are love songs. Are they love songs to women? Yeah, they're often love songs to women. Sometimes they're love songs to an ungendered subject. Mm Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're love songs from an ungendered subject to a woman. Regardless of what gendered pronouns came up, Chavela very much did not change the pronouns. Some of them are quite overtly sexual. Mm-hmm. Again, I only have the lyrics in translation, but they're like it goes to the point of, you know, comparing women's breasts to fruit. Okay. That yeah. kind of thing. Like overtly sexual. There was one where the translation went, I'm a seasoned writer when it comes to loving. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, like, her performances were also, like, when the lyrics were sexual, she had no problem with her performance being equally sexual. I'm not quite sure what to picture here. Like, one one song people mentioned a lot when they referred to this, and the lyric goes, touch me here, and Chavela literally oh, yeah. just grabs her crotch. <laughs> All right. I guess I, like, that sort of requires that movement almost. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You're not going to be like, touch me here, and I'll leave you all as adults to visualise where that may be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, her performance was very direct and, like, she's mm-hmm. very explicit. She did not shy away from any kind of emotion, I guess. No. Like, tragedy, sexual desire, anything. <laughs> Sad, happy, horny. The three song genres. <laughs> yeah, basically. Which... I feel is just something really worth mentioning just in terms of like women expressing sexual desire mm. and the fact that she could express sexual desire for women yeah, so overtly in a song and because they were often like they were traditional songs could kind of get away with it. Mm. Was there much backlash against her? I know we've talked about a few different performers in America who were either 
in drag shows or stuff like that who were often like boycotted or picketed or I'm thinking about Stormy <laughs> boycotted or picketed or things like that by conservative movements. Did um, anything like that happen? Are there those kind of things going on in Mexico? Not really the kind of boycotting. Like she couldn't obviously she couldn't ever get gigs in like sort of mainstream performance venues so mm. everywhere she's performing is these kind of like alternative bohemian venues she's performing for a certain crowd of like artists and intellectuals uh, i okay. guess where this is seen as more acceptable mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so while she is like quite well known she's successful with a particular crowd basically yeah yeah she was hired as a regular performer at Hotel Mirador in Acapulco, which was, it was a resort which was frequented by, like, celebrities from the US. Mm-hmm. It was kind of this, like, regular getaway for celebrities from America, including names as well known as, like, Elizabeth Taylor and Clark Gable. She also talked about visiting, like, foreign political officials coming to Mexico and seducing their wives while they were there. <laughs> She always refused to name the women in question for the sake of protecting their identities, which I guess, if this is true, is understandable. But we can find out which uh, foreign dignitaries might have visited this hotel, right? We can. I mean, surely can. that's, like, not a finite list, though. Yeah. yeah. Surely it's not like, these four foreign dignitaries with wives who were... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's also like, maybe it wasn't a regular occurrence. Like, maybe she slept with one or two politicians' wives. Mm-hmm. But it kind of... That's not quite on the level of, and then she kidnapped and ravished a peasant girl. But it kind of yeah. has those <laughs> Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It kind of fits with the reputation that she has. Yeah. So I can see why if she did do this one, one time even, yeah, she would make a thing of it. I enjoyed imagining that, though. I did get one excellent account from an author visiting Hotel Mirador from the US, Betty Carroll Sellen, who remembers sitting on the beach one hot evening, and what she says is, this really nice-looking woman came up to me and said, are you all right? And then said, do you have a boyfriend? I looked at her and I said, no, I don't have a boyfriend. I don't like boys. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what did it. So we started talking. She didn't like boys either. (laughs) Which was so good. I thought the scorn in your tone. That's what she was like in the interview. She sounded like offended that someone had thought she might have a boyfriend. (laughs) It was very good. Um, So then they started talking and Chavela invited her to take a trip up to the mountains on her motorbike. Betty Carroll says, all this time I'm thinking, I promised my mother I wouldn't ride on any boy's motorbike. (laughs) Aha, you found the loophole, Betty. (laughs) She did. (laughs) Then she goes on to say she was very sure of herself. She could be a little abrupt, but that didn't bother me. And the nicest part of all was she kissed me. It was wonderful. (laughs) Betty had a good holiday. Yeah, Betty had a great holiday. To be clear, this wasn't a long-term relationship. This was just a casual fling that she and Betty had that seemed to be nice. (laughs) That's Um, good. By this time in Chavela's life, drinking was becoming a problem for her. Like I said before, she'd always been an anxious performer, and to combat that, she always would do a shot of tequila before she went on stage. And mm-hmm. It escalated. Yeah, over time her one shot became a couple, became swigging from a bottle between songs. She became known for turning up to shows drunk, and people started booking her less often. In 1973... Jose Alfredo died of liver problems relating to alcoholism. Unsurprising, but very sad. Chavela apparently turned up to the coffin viewing on the evening of his death with a bottle of tequila. She sat by the coffin with Alicia, Jose's wife, and they drank it together and got smashed. And from this point on, she sort of retreats into obscurity. So she stops producing music. She never made a lot of money from her albums, the record company she signed on with it wasn't a good deal basically she broke off the contract after an argument with the manager which she claimed was because she had slept with the man's girlfriend but possibly it was just that she was being treated badly so she became more and more reclusive and other than close friends who still saw her honestly most of Mexico assumed that she had probably died in obscurity of her alcohol problems Mm -hmm. she reappears in 1988, some 15 years later, 
she reappears. A friend comes around to Chevella's house to find her several drinks in, talking to a man who wanted her to sign him on as an agent and restart her career. The friend is like, this seems a little bit dodgy. Just hold on a second. Don't sign anything. Chevella's lawyer is going to have a look at this. I agree with the friend. A good friend. And Chevella's like, I have. Okay. You're about to have a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> she calls another friend, who is a human rights lawyer, Alicia Duarte, and said, basically, look, some guy's trying to rip off Chevella Vargas. Can you come over and give me a hand? <laughs> so Alicia came over and... I quote from the documentary, this is what happened next. My friend was very pretty, with big blue eyes, and the sunlight behind her turned her hair golden. Chavella proposed to her on the spot. <laughs> Chavella was a few drinks in at the time. Yeah, Chavella was drunk, and she proposed to her on the spot. And so Alicia just kind of rolls with this, and she's like, sure, we can do that later, but let's just deal with this guy first. <laughs> Imagine this guy kind of being like, this is not how I anticipated trying to rip off this obscure singer was going to go. Right. <laughs> no. Yeah. So she managed to persuade Chavella that it wouldn't be necessary for her to get out her gun and they could deal with this disreputable agent without that. So uh, left. I'm just imagining her going from, hmm, maybe I should sign this too. Hmm. This woman is beautiful. I'll kill him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. This is how it was recounted in the documentary. Like it Alicia, from, I think he's ripping you off. Let me call your lawyer to. I'll kill him. Let's get married. Alicia was like, "All right, I think that maybe you know we'll get married later, but we should deal with this." And she was like, "Oh, okay," and like just gets out the gun and we're like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" <laughs> I understand that interacting with Chavella might just be a wild ride. Yeah. Okay. And okay. the relationship that followed was, according to Alicia, something magical. It was also quite good for Chavella in a lot of ways. She started mm-hmm. sort of coming out of herself more, going out more. She made friends with some local restaurant owners. They went mm-hmm. to parties together. This was, again, a good thing in some ways and a bad thing in other ways, going to parties. She drank a lot. But she was much happier than she had been for the previous 15 years of obscurity. However, the increased drinking led to her developing liver problems. I'm surprised that's only just becoming a factor, to be honest. Yeah, frankly. In spite of everything Alicia did, Alicia kept insisting, you know, you're having health problems, you need to cut back on the drinking. She didn't change anything, essentially. At some point, Chavella went to see a shaman Mm -hmm. and spent a while away with the shaman. And when she came back, she stopped drinking. She always gives credit to the shaman for curing her alcoholism. However, when asked about this, Alicia expressed exasperation and said, that must mean I'm a shaman, thank you. (laughs) That's what I was about to say. I think she should give some credit to Alicia. Yeah. She instead relates an anecdote in which she caught a drunk Chavella teaching Alicia's son to shoot a pistol. And she was like, this is not on, naturally. Yeah. And... How old is the son? Is this like a child? Six years old. Oh. The son is a six-year-old child and she's teaching him to shoot a gun. And when Alicia catches them, she tells Chavella... You have to either stop drinking or I'm not letting you see me and my child again. Yep, that's fair. And she says, Chavella went home for a week, which she spent calling Alicia every night to beg her forgiveness. And then finally came round a week later to Alicia's house and swore on everything she loved most dearly, says Alicia. Swore on you and your son that she would never drink again. Okay. So, like, from where I'm looking, both of these, the shaman and this seem like very kind of neatly contained stories Mm, to solve mm. alcoholism. But regardless, she does seem to have quit drinking at this point. Okay. Okay. Around this time, so we're in the late 80s, nearby... She's already so old. Yeah. (laughs) She's about to have a comeback and an international career. Oh my god. Around this time, a bar named El Abitor was opening near where Travella lived. The co-owners, Liliana Felipe and Jesus Rodriguez, were looking for famous performers to perform at their opening night. How convenient. <laughs> I did Google at this point just to see if Liliana and Jesus were queer. I That's didn't what I was find about to a say. definitive answer, but I did find a video called Liliana y Jesus El Clitoris. What? Um, what is this video? I do not know. It was in Spanish. <laughs> I it thought an artsy performance piece that they did. I thought you were going to say, "What does El Clitoris mean in English?" Because <laughs> I translate this for me. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, 
So Liliana and Jesus did this performance with this title. I think so. I think they they did that performance? They were both musicians as well. Okay. Uh, Okay. But this is from this time, I guess? I don't know when it was from. It just came up in my Google search and I was like... That doesn't seem the most straight. That doesn't seem super straight. They're not very well known outside of Spanish-speaking areas, so I couldn't find anything super satisfying to answer... You know, were they gay? They're referred to as partners, but they're also running a business together. So I'm How like, frustrating. I don't know. I think they're queer. I don't know. Anyway, they heard that Chavela Vargas lived nearby. And after they got over their shock that she was still alive, <laughs> they decided to give her a go. And they got in touch and were like, do you want to come to a rehearsal? So this was the first time that Chavela had performed in well over a decade. Mm-hmm. At the first rehearsal... She sung for an hour straight, crying the whole time. Oh, that's so intense. Yeah, we were deeply moved and shaken by it, said Liliana. It's better just like, you know, opening a local bar. Like, yeah, yeah, come over, play a few songs. And then she just goes through a like emotional reckoning on stage for yeah. an hour. And they're like, I see. <laughs> they're lucky they had a rehearsal, I guess. Yeah. Javella had never performed sober before, mm. but Liliana was unwilling to have Javella drunk on stage because she heard things about Chavella in the past and she said no you can perform sober for me or not at all and so Chavella had her first ever sober performance it was apparently intense I'm sure it was yeah so this was the beginning of Chavella's second career as a singer in many ways it was bigger or more successful than the first she'd always like I discussed before her sexuality had always meant that she didn't get booked for like mainstream venues mm-hmm. she was always in this kind of bohemian artsy yeah alternative area but she'd always dreamed of playing on stages of great theaters and now in the early 90s Somehow her sexuality was no longer an obstacle to mainstream success, which I thought was kind of odd. I don't know whether people just found it less threatening because she was much older. Mm, that's Maybe. true. Or I mean, society also changes. Changes, yeah. Yeah. I know what the trends are specifically in Mexico of attitudes to queer people, but broadly society becomes more accepting of queer people. Yeah, so I'm not sure, but either way, whatever the sort of societal conventions that held her back earlier seem not to be an issue here overt sexuality continues to be a part of her performance the touch me here song is still in her repertoire (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty great though we don't get to see that many like older women in general let alone older women who are overtly sexual let alone older women who are overtly sexual about other women Yeah, Yeah, yeah yeah no like honestly the fact that she was wildly successful in mexico hmm in Spain as well. Like, she's wildly successful in Europe, yeah. too. It's stunning. Mm. Well, I know we did an episode on Josephine Baker, which is a long time ago callback. She struggled in her later career because, like, her performances were also quite sexualized. Yeah. And she struggled in her later career because people weren't comfortable seeing an older woman perform in a sexual way, and they felt it was kind of inappropriate and almost comical and kind of farcical to see that and so that was an issue for her as she got older and it seems that Chavela's having the opposite experience yeah I think there's a difference between like a woman performing a kind of masculine active sexual mm-hmm. persona and performing one where they're kind of performing a kind of sexuality that appeals to men that's very true Josephine yeah. was performing a very kind of sexually objectified yeah. image yeah yeah that's true that's true yeah no that's that's true i was going to say like i don't think when chavela is performing like sexually explicit music you're not necessarily meant to find chavela sexual she's just mm-hmm. expressing her own sexuality yeah yeah like the fact you can find chavela sexual i guess but that's not actually the point yvonne definitely did <laughs> In one, like, Josephine is the sex object, I guess. Yeah. Where Chavella is the sex subject. I guess that's how it is. Mm. I guess that's what you say. (laughs) That's what academics say anyway. Yeah. During this time, Chavella and Alicia started moving apart from each other. It doesn't seem to have been a very amiable split. Chavella says that Alicia had betrayed her. It's not clear in the interview what she felt Alicia had done, Mm -hmm. just that that's what she said. Alicia cites Chavella's sort of temper and emotional volatility and sort of tendency for violence as an immediate response. 
to be mm. reasons why she couldn't live in this relationship anymore. I mean, we have seen that she was ready to shoot that man. Yeah, like, yeah. I guess the start of their relationship kind of paints a fairly clear picture of that emotional volatility. Yeah. Does Chamele perform songs about Alicia and this breakup? She doesn't perform songs that are, like, specifically about Alicia because she doesn't generally write her own songs. Mm-hmm. Okay. But... She does seem to use her music as a kind of coping mechanism for it. Mm -hmm. When she talks about it, it's sort of like she's saying she previously would have turned to alcohol, but in this case, she's quit drinking and she's going to stick to that. And so she's sort of using music as a space to deal with that instead i was gonna ask if her sort of like breakup songs are like jose's where you said that he will be like oh go and like live your life i'm so sad as opposed to being like you know that awful woman or whatever and i'm wondering if chuella didn't do that she definitely continues to perform jose's songs Mm-hmm. including his breakup songs. Yeah, like she performs songs that Jose has written for her whole life and she's like quite famous as part of that collaboration. Mm-hmm. So she's definitely still performing his songs. So I'm not sure exactly what the content of her songs was, but yeah, like she's still performing those songs. And the interview in which she said she found like that aspect of his lyrics valuable is in the early 90s. So that's okay. just after her breakup with Alicia? Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Mm-hmm. So it must still be something that it's is relevant. important to her. Whether she managed to act that out in her own response is another thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Sometimes, you know, you believe in one thing, but you act a different way in an emotionally intense moment. That is a true fact about people. Yeah. Around this time, she gets invited to perform in Spain. where So she's being getting more popular in Spain. Those albums that she never made any money off do get sold in other Spanish-speaking countries, and so she does a tour of Spain. It's highly successful. Everything is sold out. There seems to be something very kind of cathartic about her performances at this point. You know how in that first rehearsal she had... She cried on stage. She cried for an hour on stage, and Liliana was like, wow, okay, I guess we're booking this. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Someone, this is again from the documentary, they just interviewed some people who'd seen her perform live in Spain, and somebody said, you know how your face looks after therapy? Cleanse from all that crying? That's how our faces look. Okay. <laughs> so it's an interesting, yeah, like it's an interesting vibe that mm. her older, like her later performances have. That's not what you imagine people are looking for when they go to a concert. Yeah, but apparently. I mean, people go to concerts to feel extreme emotion. Yeah. I guess that's true. I guess that's true. There's also a lot of people describe her as providing this kind of confessional space. Mm-hmm. Which, like, we touched on earlier, even in her younger performances. They talked about that, like, early morning confessional I like that feeling. they said early morning confessional feeling, because that makes me specifically think of somebody who's, like, gone out the night before and, like, got absolutely trashed and done all this stuff and then wakes up in the morning really hungover and is like, I should go to confession now. <laughs> I'm more kind of pictured, like, you know when you're at a house party and it's, like, five in the morning and you're <laughs> oh, having yeah. this weird D&M with someone you've never seen before and you'll never see again? I definitely assumed we were talking about church. Maybe we weren't talking I don't about know. church. I don't know. I don't think I you can say confessional in Latin America without, without talking about church. <laughs> yeah. A friend of hers, the film director Pedro Almodovar, says, She was like a priestess. She absolved you of your sins. So we're talking about church. We're talking about church, (laughs) which seems to be a fairly common response, I guess, this feeling of, like, catharsis or emotional cleansing or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A sort of quasi-religious experience. So I know when we did our episode a couple of weeks ago on Marsha and we talked about how, like, video just couldn't capture what appealed about her performances. Is it the case with Chabella that her albums and her video capture this thing that people are feeling, do you think? I feel like you can sort of see it, but I don't think you can experience it in the same way. But you can see why they experience it. Yeah, like you can see what they might have been seeing, but you're interacting with it at a greater distance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, like I feel like everything feels different at a live performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Live performances are just inherently intense. That's true. To some extent. I just had a thought now that it's interesting this, that we've got sort of this older lesbian woman who's very comfortable in her sexuality and that people come out of her performances like, I feel holy, I feel cleansed. 
Mm. That's such an odd, like, odd response. Mm. Those things seem sort of at odds in society, generally. This was a really common thing in the episode. I don't think I kind of touched on this theme, but when I was researching Marsha, it was a really common thing that people, and not just queer people who knew her, but just like people who knew her would say, was that they felt they were in the presence of someone holy when they spoke yeah. to her and they referred to her as being a saint and being blessed That's and those kinds of things. interesting to get a little, like, tinfoily. <laughs> All right, yeah. go on. Okay. In I love tinfoil. <laughs> We've talked before, I think more, like, off-air about how across cultures and especially, like, in the ancient world, gender non-conforming people often find spaces as religious figures. Mm. There's certain, like, priestess roles that exist in the ancient world for, like, it's a whole thing. <laughs> I don't really have time to qualify the statement <laughs> now, but, like, trans-feminine people mm. um, and so forth. And, like, I'm not suggesting that Chevelle is trans. No, no, um, but Chevelle is definitely gender non-conforming. Yeah, and, yeah. like, queer people throughout history are generally understood to be gender non-conforming anyway. Yeah, I know we had this with Oshtish. Yeah, Oshtish. so that's a, another example. Yeah, like, um, their gender was specifically associated with being visited by spirits and having, like, a connection mm. being a bridge to the spirit world. And it's kind of, like, it's it's so tinfoil <laughs> and I, I don't have any, like, real academic basis for saying this, but it is kind of nice to think about, like, queerness as something that was recognised as holy by societies that weren't really on board with it in mm. ancient Rome and in Oshtish's society, although they were pretty on board with it. Yeah. Yeah. And also that being a manifestation of the same kind of societal impulse, just seeing yeah. Chiro and Argus in concert. Yeah. I know I, that was nuts, but I'm no, saying No, I don't look I feel like there's a solid thesis in that. I feel like there is definitely a thesis in the kind of gender nonconforming and Yeah and like religious and spiritual Thing. spirituality of yeah. queerness yeah i think there's something in that yeah yeah anyway so after her huge success in spain she moves on to a performance in paris this is one of the most nerve-wracking things she's ever done hmm. nobody speaks the language she's singing yeah. in there she feels very much that she's a nobody outside the spanish-speaking world that these people have never heard of her that they won't come and see her that even if they do they won't understand her mm-hmm. but They managed to sell out the show in Paris, and Chevella says of it afterwards, I was afraid that they wouldn't understand me. But they did. Afterwards, they all went to get drunk. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Which made me laugh. (laughs) So the rest of her comeback career is a lot like this. At the age of 83, she debuts at Carnegie Hall. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. That's wonderful. Which is wonderful, I agree. I love when old people do things. I just think as a society, we have really weird ideas about ageing and everyone I know is like 25 and freaking out that they haven't achieved anything yet and they're past it. And like... Yeah, I definitely... Frankly, you need to live two more of that lifetime and you can still debut at Carnegie Hall (laughs) in eight years. That is inspiring, but also I could be like, oh, I'll just procrastinate everything (laughs) until I die then. True. I'll just wake up at 83 and be like, oh no. (laughs) Now I'm too old. What have I done? (laughs) True. To go back two years from her debut at Carnegie Hall, at the age of 81, she came out as a lesbian. I am shocked. Yeah. Kind of a non-event. Everybody always knew that she was attracted to women. She made no secret of it. But she had always been kind of of the opinion that like declaring or labeling your sexuality was unnecessary and she didn't feel the need to sort of pin herself down that way in those interviews she did in 1991 for the documentary she gave vague answers she sort of said why does it matter if i'm homosexual people love who they love that is the clearest statement that i am gay that yeah. i've ever heard yeah. but <laughs> in her 80s she came out as a lesbian And I don't have her exact words about this because they were in Spanish in her autobiography, unfortunately. Is this when she published the autobiography that she came out as a lesbian or? Um, She published the autobiography in 2002. So that would be when she was 83. Yeah. So it's a little before that. So she talks about why her perspective changed and she says she sort of started seeing the value of like aligning herself with the lesbian community as an act Mm. of solidarity and Mm. seeing like a community of people who support each other Mm. rather than labeling yourself as a lesbian being something that 
like limits your opinity down. So she recognised it as like not an individual thing. You're not saying like I'm a lesbian. You're saying I'm part of the lesbian community. Yeah, and she mm. compared it to her like feelings about being a woman or like feminism as a movement mm. where she was kind of like even though like she was quite gender non-conforming she was like no I'm still I'm a woman and she wanted to align herself with women as a community as a kind of solidarity and yeah she draws this parallel and so she starts to identify as a lesbian in 2012 she set out for Spain to promote her latest album which was a number of the poems of Federico Garcia Lorca set Oh to my music. god. Yeah, Federico it's is Federico. Here. She set a number of her of his poems to music and put together an album when she was 93. If you don't know listeners, we did an episode on Federico. Do you think she knows that Federico is also queen? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I can't remember how open he was about his sexuality. Hmm. Hmm. So by this time she was 93. Her health was ailing. She often used a wheelchair, but she loved performing. And her friends who travelled with her said she was full of energy at the start of the tour and she went anyway. Unfortunately, she fell sick on the day of the the first performance. Mm. She insisted on performing anyway. She tried as hard as she could to die on stage, said one of her friends. That was her dream, to go down in history as the woman who died singing. (laughs) What an intense moment that would have been. Yeah. She survived the concert, however, and was hospitalised, and she spent the next few days in hospital in Spain. However, she was aware that she was reaching the end of her life, and given that dying on an international stage no longer looks like an option for her, her next plan was to make it home to Mexico, to die in my own country, she says. Mm. So she always felt a lot of love for Mexico as her sort of adopted homeland. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm. And so as soon as the doctors gave her the okay, she flew home to Mexico and she died a few days later on August the 5th. Her last words, according to her Facebook page, were, I go with Mexico in my heart. I just wanted to finish with one quote about her importance to the lesbian community. This is from a queer performer in Mexico and... She says, for the lesbian community, Chavela is the most important woman in Mexican history. The woman who opened the door for all of us. She opened a path for us the moment she started singing in Mexico. We all knew of her. There isn't a lesbian in Mexico who doesn't know Chavela Vargas and who doesn't love her and adore her. Mm, That's very good. That is so good. No wonder Chavela embraced the lesbian community when it embraced her so, so much. It did. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. If you liked what you heard here, you can find the rest of our episodes on Podbean, on iTunes, on Spotify, which, like, personally, I'm still very excited about. (laughs) (laughs) It's old news now. It's old news now. I'm still excited. Or wherever else you find your podcasts. You can find us on social media, on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook as Queer as Fact. If you want to contact us directly, you can email us at queerasfact at gmail.com. If you wanted to leave us a review on iTunes, that would be much appreciated. It really helps us to reach a wider audience. To inspire you, we've got a couple of reviews here now. This review is from, oh, this looks like a real name, not like Tardislava7000 or whatever. (laughs) So I'll just say the first name, even though I guess these are public. This is from Becca in America, who has given us five stars. Thank you, Becca. The title is Amazing Podcast. The review reads, Informative, methodical, entertaining, and just generally well done. This podcast is for anyone who wants to know a bit more about those unexplored corners of history through a queer lens. I've listened to every episode, which blows my mind because I haven't listened to every episode. <laughs> Neither. Am I the only one of us that's actually listened to every episode? Oh, I haven't listened to the most recent one in full. No, no, yes. no one's listened to every so, episode. So Becca has done better than anyone who like works on this podcast. Yeah. Because there's yeah. no way Jason's listened to every episode. No. Yeah. They definitely have. So good job, Becca. You should probably just own the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and always find them enjoyable. As a member of the queer community myself, it's been wonderful and comforting to learn we fit into a historical context, and I've learned so much beyond that as well. Highly, highly recommend. Thank you, Becca. Thank you, Becca. This one is from Bill the Toucan, who is also American. Hey, Bill. Which one of our people we did an episode on was it that had a toucan? I don't remember this at all. Probably Josephine. It wasn't Josephine. Was it Harvey Milk? Was it Harvey? I think it was Harvey. Was it Bill? We had 
to take a moment to Google Bill the Toucan, to be honest. But now we know. That's not true. I remembered who Bill the Toucan was. <laughs> I would really love to know if this person's iTunes username was A, coincidentally, the name of Harvey Milk's Toucan. That seems unlikely. B, independently of us, the name of Harvey Milk's Toucan. Or C, because of us, the name of Harvey Milk's Toucan. <laughs> I like option C. Which, like, I feel any of these options would I would enjoy. Uh, it's five stars and it's titled, It's 2am and I'm having emotions. <laughs> I love that you were like, it's 2am and I am ready to review. <laughs> This podcast means a lot to me. I love the stories. I love the scholarship. I love the joy that the crew clearly takes in their work. I love the care and thought and kindness that they pour into understanding these figures and sharing them with us. When I was 19, right around the time I started coming out, one of my professors coincidentally recommended Dan Carlin's History of Rome podcast. Carlin's episodes on Hadrian were revelatory. Getting to really see that there have been people like me forever and that they were more than just victims of violence. It meant the world. And at that point in time when I didn't really have anything else, anyone else to see myself in, I just looked past the uncomfortably pedophilic and possibly murderous sides of his relationship with Antonus. We'll get into it in a later episode, okay? Let's just get past that. We'll get into it. We have a Roman Emperor series now, kind of, maybe. I can't really say enough how much having more than just him means to me. Having Pauli Mari, Horace Walpole, and Baron von Steuben. Having a history and a people means you aren't alone, that others have struggled with the same weights you are, and that, like some of them, you can overcome them. That you can be okay because they managed it. The end of your episode on Harvey Milk made me cry. It made me cry too. It made all of us cry. <laughs> you have a recording of us all crying. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> the 20,000 people singing him happy birthday. I don't have words. Thank you. Thank you for giving me these people and stories to carry around with me. Thank you for helping me better understand myself and my slash our history. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Bill. Yeah, thank, thank you, you, Bill. Thank you, Bill, for two this podcast is a lot of work and we all have like full-time obligations on top of it and periodically i think about how this is taking years of my life and i can't do it anymore and then someone gives us a review like that and i'm like of course i can so thank Mm. you bill (laughs) it's been a week you are lovely so this is the end of our second season which unlike our first season is 10 episodes long and not like 50 (laughs) (laughs) that is accurate yeah which is what we'll be doing from now on we're not going to have like a 50 episode season and then a 10 episode season and all like that just to be clear but while we're having a break we will not really be having a break we are bringing out a special episode in may where alice and i will be interviewing heather jacks and sister roma Heather Jacks has just written a book, Sister Stories, on the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, a group of queer activist nuns, and Sister Roma is one of the nuns. I bet they've given some people holy experiences. True. True. We can explore the uh, holy queerness in more depth. Indeed. Yeah. Thanks to everyone who sent in questions. We hope you enjoy the episode. We'll be back with season three in June. Where we'll be bringing you a whole lot of special extra content for Pride Month, along with our usual fortnightly episodes. Thank you for listening. We've been Queer as Fact. <laughs>